Our passage this morning is from Psalm 8, uh, and just uh, let's hear the word of God. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established your strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along with the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the... Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. It's awesome. It's awesome. Good to be with you this morning. So uh, a number of years ago, there was an article uh, entitled, The Irony of Being Human. And the article reported two events that happened. In the first story, a young woman was seen alone in a, in a hotel room. And uh, she had left her husband, her two children, for another man. And that evening, her uh, new partner had actually left her. And in utter despair, she actually ended up taking her own life. And the police found a separate note on the nightstand that said this, do not cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. Another event took place in the same hotel room, or excuse me, the same hotel that night. Just a few floors below, advocates of the New Age movement gathered in a convention center. And after several rousing talks, a well-known celebrity got up and led everyone in a unison chant, declaring, I am God. I am God. And the article concluded this way, the irony of being human is that people in the same time and same place can have such contradictory views of themselves. It's really the question before us this morning, what does it mean to be human? Who are we? What, what is humanity's identity and place in the universe? Now, let me say this, uh, perhaps those questions feel a little bit like they belong in a classroom, like perhaps some really smart philosophers should throw those around. But let me just suggest to you that these are actually um, very palpable things. Like how you answer that question determines how you view yourself. Uh, How you answer these questions determines how you view the person sitting next to you. Even how you answer that question of what does it mean to be human Uh, it affects where you find yourself at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning in whatever vocation God has perhaps called you to. And Psalm 8, it is designed so that we might understand humanity's place in this world. Now, uh, we've been going through a series, The Original Playlist, and uh, this series we're going through this book of Psalms. And and what this this collection of songs does, it was written for... uh, a group of folks about two or 3,000 years ago, and it was to help them learn to trust, praise, and pray to this God in the midst of the complexities of life. And this psalm is designed that we might know our place in this world. Um, I don't know if you guys ever, uh, you know, find yourselves lost, and you, you pull out your smartphone, and you pull up Google Maps, and you for me, it's in the bottom right-hand corner. You hit that little icon 
So it actually sends you to where you are, your GPS location, you know, so you know where you are in proximity to the rest of the world. And you know what it's like when you're not sure where you are, you don't know kind of where things are? Psalm 8 is to reorient humanity's place in this world. It's like a GPS locator. Let me suggest this, or um, just Michael Whitmer, he's a professor and author, he says this, to be human is to be in proper relationship with God, with other people in the world. And in our psalm today, let me just suggest to you that it points us to look really in four directions to reorient our lives. It tells us to look up, it calls us to look down, it calls us to look back, and it calls us to look forward. So let me go ahead and pray, and we'll dive in. Father, we're just grateful that you have not left us um, without a word of who we are. Thanks for your word, and just pray this morning that as we hear from it, that you would help us to reorient our lives to who you are and to who we are and to what our place is in this world. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So, the beginning of the psalm actually begins by calling us to look up. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And that kind of sounds like some religious lingo, some verbiage, right? But what the psalmist is doing is he's really just in awe of God. Now, um, you know what it's like when you've been in awe of something or someone, right? You know what it's like. Like, for example, uh, Fellas, when you guys dial up the top 10 sports center, you know, highlights, you know, you, you see various athletes doing amazing things, and what do you do? You can't help but say, did you see that? You're in awe of whatever that person did. Some of you, perhaps this week, you went downtown, and maybe you found yourself at, at Gray's, and you tried the 1980 floor cocktail, with its Flor de Caña seven-year rum infused with lime and grapefruit juice and a hint of maple syrup. And it so tantalized your palate, right, that you couldn't help but say, did you try that? You need to try it. It's amazing, right? We, we all have various experiences in our lives in which we can't help but tell others about just how amazing this one was or this experience was. Well, the psalmist is doing that, but it's doing it in relationship to God. And then at the end of verse 1, it says this, you have set your glory above the heavens. The psalmist begins by really staying in awe of God and all that he's made. And he's actually calling us to look up at the heavens. That's kind of above the earth. It's talking about the stars. We'll see that more specifically in a moment. Um, I don't know if you guys know Carl Sagan, but he was this guy back in the 80s um, who was an American astronomer. And he was best known for his uh, public television series called The Cosmos, A Personal Voyage. And each of his uh, shows would begin with him kind of out on this peninsula. And he'd be wearing this like tan blazer, you know, the wind would be blowing through his hair. And uh, he would open up each show with this phrase, or this, these few phrases. The cosmos is all that there is or was or ever will be. Our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir 
us, there's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. And Carl Sagan, he was a secular humanist. He's, he's, he's not a, a theist or even ob- obviously a Christian at all, but you notice how he couldn't get away from, as he looks up at the universe, he can't help but say things like a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice. He's, he's standing in awe of this creation. And, you know, just as one might come across, for example, the works of art like the Mona Lisa or the Starry Night and rightly be in awe, Psalm 8, track 8, calls us not to stop at the work of art, but to attribute the beauty and intricacy of it to the artist, to the Van Gogh, to the Da Vinci. And as we look up at creation itself, that we look at who, at, at what is there, and we would attribute it to the one who made it. That we'd stand in awe of this God who made all of this, that this is his canvas. He is the artist. Track eight, as a GPS locator of who we are as humans, it begins with looking up and standing in awe of the God who has made all of this. But the psalmist continues to draw our eyes up in verses three and four. This is what he says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. The the psalmist calls us to look up at the moon and the stars. And in this kind of anthropomorphic language says this, that the heavens the moon and the stars are the work of his fingers. Like, it's like when I go into my son Sam's room and he's seven and he's manipulating Legos to build what he wants. He can do that. It's really easy for him. And the psalmist is saying this, that like my son Sam, how he manipulates Legos with his fingers, that's what it's like for God to work with the stars. But what's more amazing is that no matter how vast the universe is, it says this, that what is man that you're mindful of and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, the creator God who has made all of this with his fingers, in the midst of all that creation, the psalmist says what? That humanity actually fills God's mind. That actually cares for us we need to ponder that for a moment. Like, if we were to go out to perhaps the Washburn Observatory and look up in the sky, we just look at our Milky Way galaxy, we would be stunned by its immensity, but by all that's there. But here's the deal. Did you know it, our Milky Way galaxy is so big that if, if our Milky Way galaxy was the size of North America— our solar system would be a coffee cup. And Earth would be a piece of dust in the cup. And scientists estimate that that our galaxy is one of at least 100 
billion. And it just keeps going up. And it says that this God who has made all of this, that can do all this just with the work of his fingers, that even though we're absolutely nothing compared to the vastness of the universe, it says that this God actually cares for humanity. That we actually fill his mind. Track 8 reorients us really on one note to the smallness of who we are and the vastness of who God is. And yet, regardless of those two extremes, the resolve that he actually cares for humanity. So track eight begins by pointing this up, to look up. But it also calls us to look down, and we see this in verses five through eight. In verse five it says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. It's talking about humanity being a little bit lower than angels and heavenly beings. But then it says that humanity is crowned with glory and honor. And that is a riff off of Genesis 1, 26 through 27, where it says that God made man, male and female, in his image. If you go back to that account, humanity is the last thing that's created. It's, it's the pinnacle, you know? It's kind of like the, the thing you save, you always save the best for last of anything you're doing, right? That humanity is made in God's image. And what you need to understand, when, when those words were penned in the context of the ancient Near East, there was much, much diversity in terms of who God was and who, who humanity was. You see, the predominant view of humanity at that age was this, is that the king of the nation, whoever the king was, they were made in God's image. They were the representative of God and everyone else was not. And so when, when Genesis 1 and this riff of Psalm 8 is penned, when it's revealed, you know what it's suggesting? You know what it's saying? It's saying that everyone bears the intrinsic dignity of being made in the image of God. It does not matter your race. It does not matter your creed. It doesn't matter your color. That all are made with dignity. They are crowned with glory and honor. In 1952, um, when Princess Elizabeth Alexandra Mary she was, she was 26, and she was crowned Queen Elizabeth II uh, in Great Britain. And C.S. Lewis was looking on this event, and this is what he said, the pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head was a symbol of the situation of all men. Track eight and reorienting our humanity and who we are. It's this stunning reality that we are crowned, that we represent the very God who has made us. That there is intrinsic dignity. And not only that, the section continues to show how we actually 
reflect this God. It says that we've been given a role. So look at verses 6 through 8. It says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This looking down suggests that humanity has something to do. And at first glance, it seems like we should all look to be employed at the Henry Vilas Zoo, right? We should um, figure out how to tame some lions, work with some animals, right? But the backdrop to this passage, again, goes back to a riff on Genesis 1. Right after God says humanity's made in his image, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and he says, subdue the earth. So these two words, dominion and subdue, we have to understand what it's talking about. And those words kind of seem a little bit archaic, perhaps even barbaric, but when you understand what it's actually talking about, it it means this, is that we as image bearers of God are to bring every kind of cultural activity into this very service of God. We're to bring every kind of cultural activity into the very service of this God. The, the term subdue, it means to cultivate. You know, uh, a few weeks back, um, we, we planted our garden. Why? Because, you know what? Plants aren't just going to grow out of there. Weeds will, right? But not like fruit-bearing tomato plants, you know? To cultivate that field, what does that mean? It means I had to till it. It means I had to water it. It means I had to prepare it. I had to put some seeds down and continue to do that continue to cultivate it so that hopefully in about a month we'll start to get some cherry tomatoes, right? Hopefully we'll start to get some peppers and some other things like that. And what God is suggesting here is that our role in the universe is to do that in whatever sphere we find ourselves. To cultivate the very possibilities. And that means whether it be commerce or politics or scholarship or family life or church or leisure or medical software They are all to be done in a way that brings it in service to God. One author put it this way, that to subdue means to enhance its beauty, its usefulness, and its fruitfulness. And and Psalm is just looking back, he's going, God, you're just amazing. I cannot believe you've given us that task to cultivate the very possibilities of what's before us. And so here's, I mean, just straight up, like some of you, you, you're called to cultivate the possibilities of medical software for the flourishing of healthcare. That's directly tied to Psalm 8. Some of you, you are called to cultivate the personnel that you manage over you so that they might actually be equipped well to the task they're called to do. Others of you, you're, you're, you're in the season of grad, sc- grad school and you're, it's a season of kind of leveraging it to prepare for a vocation, right? Of enhancing the, the usefulness of whatever field you're doing for the ability of life to flourish. All of this is what it means to image God. Others of you, it's, it's perhaps the, 
It's the mom or dad that are called to cultivate the possibilities of and, and the potential of their children. To walk in the needed wisdom, discipline, and physical care so they, that they might grow up to lead lives that are lived for fruitful service to the one who's made them. See, in looking down, as we look down and reorient ourselves in light of Psalm 8, it's suggesting this, that to be human is to recognize that the eight to five of our lives and everything else in between are not something isolated from God. There is no sacred, secular divide. All of life is lived in the midst of his kingship, of who he is and who he's made us to be. And that means everything we do has meaning. Everything we do has purpose. Because it's lived in light of who he says we are. Made in his image with intrinsic dignity. Not just that, but even tasks before us to accomplish for his service, for his glory. Now, not only does the psalmist call us to look up and look down, but the psalmist also calls us to look back. Now, if you've ever been in a karaoke night or you've seen a cover band, you know that their job is to take that original work and to do your best at it, right? And usually it's like it's bottom drawer, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not as good. That's the whole point. It's hilarious, right? Um, well, later on in the scriptures, Psalm 8 is taken up again, and it's re-sung. And unlike most karaoke nights that just fall flat, uh, the author of Hebrews actually re-sings this and actually tells us where all of this is pointing. I want you to listen. This is Hebrews chapter 2, 6 through 9. It'll be up on, the, up on the screen here. The author of Hebrews writes this, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Do you guys hear the riff, right? That's the karaoke re-singing author of Hebrews. Now listen up. He locates it. He says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, the question is, who's the him, right? He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And here's the hymn, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What the author of Hebrews is doing is he's saying this, that Jesus is the truest representative of humanity. He is the ideal human. And you'll notice at the end, it says this, that Jesus, while he, when it says he was made lower than the angels, it's not saying that he wasn't God. It's suggesting this, when he was, when he put on flesh and he lowered himself <coughs> to where we are. And then it says that he came to taste death for everyone, for everyone. 
And if you want, if you need to understand that this is so important, if you understand why Jesus is the ideal human, you need to back up for a moment and go, well, what's, what's wrong here? Why did Jesus have to taste death for everyone? It means this, that, that we as humans are not who we, ought, who we ought to be, right? It doesn't take long to understand that as we think about the various dominions of this world and how humanity has led and ruled, how just corrupt and how backwards and bent and broken it is. You know, as of June, the rough estimate in the now four years civil war in Syria has claimed nearly over, over 200,000 lives. In the month of May, just under 7,000 were killed. Just a few days ago, we have a white man stepping into a church and gunning down nine African Americans. This only continues to just, you know, the, the, this only continues the chorus of racial tensions that fill our cities. And, and we look out here at the headlines, we recognize this is not how things ought to be, right? But we don't just have to look out there. We can also just look at ourselves and we can see the apathy, perhaps, the self-centeredness, which distorts, disrupts, causes various dissensions within our own relationships, within amongst our own coworkers, our marriages, our families. And the biblical narrative said it, it wasn't always like this. It wasn't always like this. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, everything was in its right place. But that what happened is, is that our first parents, Adam and Eve, instead of trusting God, they turned from God. They disobeyed God, and in so doing, humanity has been bent and broken from the way it was originally meant to be lived, from who they were meant to be. And in the end, it led to the worst penalty of all, death itself. Who would have thought that the very image of God would die? So when the author of Hebrews re-sings Psalm 8 and says this all points to Jesus, he's saying this, that God is going to bring everything under his dominion. He's going to rescue and restore all things. That it all happens through Jesus' work, through his life, through his death, and his resurrection. That that's how actually humanity can be restored. That's how death can be defeated. The, the point of this, track eight, redone by Hebrews, says this, if you really want, if you really want to understand what it means to be human, you look to Jesus. If you want to, to be made new from the inside out, forgiven, brought right in relationship to God, brought into relationship with others. It all starts by looking to him. So, so if, if you're not a Christian here this morning, let me just real clearly say, like, this is where you have to pause, you have to think, you have to consider who this Jesus is. You can stand and you can look up and you, and, and you can be amazed at this God who made everything. You can look down and look at your tasks, but you need 
to consider Jesus. That's where God has fully revealed himself. Now, if you have put your trust in Jesus, and you're in this process of being made new, the last part that I want to point out is this psalm calls us to look forward. And um, this song isn't country, okay? Let's just be honest, okay? Like, this is not country. And by that, I mean, you know, country's like, you know what it's exactly saying because it says it very plainly. You know, anybody can understand what it's saying? Well, look at verse 2 with me for a moment. This is how I know it's not country. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Uh, doesn't that feel just a little bit cryptic? Like, what's going on here? Like, this is one of those deals as a pastor when you like, you're going through the text, you're like, why is this in here? You know, like, I don't understand this. Why is this here? I wish it was not here and, you know, but actually it's really good it is, okay? It's really good it is. And uh, so here's what's going on, okay? Uh, it's this poetic picture of very weak things overcoming very strong things. Notice it's, it's babies and infants, right? It's the Othellos and it's the Rubies who are somehow overcoming people much bigger than me, right? <laughs> uh, someone who has much power. This is poetic imagery. And one of the things that happens, for example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians actually attributes this text and this, this sort of section, he, he actually attributes it to the people of God, the people that identify with Jesus, in which he has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And perhaps the most ironic twist of verse 2 is how these infants and babies actually overcome these foes, right? It says, out of their mouths that they establish strength. And that phrase, establish strength, literally means to sing. So here we go. This is how you're going to overcome the enemies. Little babies singing, okay? <laughs> like that's what this is saying. What is going on there, right? This is why this is not country. This is cryptic. But here's what's going on. It's saying this. Verse 2 is suggesting that those who identify with the truest human, Jesus, they are weak in comparison to what they face in this broken world. They do not have the strength to overcome all that opposes them. But as they come to God with singing and petitions, that is how they overcome. With singing and petitions. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Um, it, it starts with the assumption that we just, we're just weak. I don't know if you like that or not. Sometimes I like to dismiss that. Sometimes I like to think I have some skills to offer. But Psalm 8 just says, actually in comparison to what you're facing, you're weak. And when I think about Redeemer City Church, you know, one of the things we talk about is our, our vision is to see our city renewed 
by the gospel. Um, that's a large vision. We, we, we want to see people like encounter Jesus, come to faith in Jesus. We, we want to see various fields of work actually be transformed because of this narrative of who God is and what he's done and where all things are headed. That would actually influence the very work you do. We want to see young boys and young kids grow up and actually love Jesus and respect and honor their parents. We, we want to see like people who are different socioeconomic and different race actually come together and, and love one another. Like, that's not easy. I would suggest you that's almost, that's basically impossible. And what this verse is suggesting is that how we see things like that happen, wherever we find ourselves, is by petitioning this God. That how we actually cultivate the possibilities and the various fears God has with us, has us in, is through petitioning and singing to this God. Yeah, you're going to be the weirdo singing like in your cubicle, right? No, I'm not maybe perhaps suggesting that, right? But what I am saying is this. It's, it's this. Here's a few pictures. And we all got to work this out. But it's perhaps, it's the mother who is in distress over the spiritual state of her son. Who as he sleeps in the middle of the night, goes and looks in and just prays. Petitioning, God, would you do something? His heart is wayward. That's what my mom did. Um, it's the petitions of the employee with a week ahead whose workload is increasing and competency is not catching up. And it's in weakness, petitioning this God for the peace that's needed and the joy that's needed to image him to those around them. It's the petitions of the married couple whose perhaps relationship is on the ropes. It's petitioning God, God, would you give my spouse a soft heart? It's the petitions of young parents who in the chaos of life with newborns and infants that are, just demand so much that throughout the day you're just petitioning God for strength and wisdom and patience and just help me get through this day in a way that reflects you, not perfectly, but by your grace and by your spirit, actually in a way that points what I, who I am to you. It's, it's the petitions of our city groups who we want to see, right? Like actually in the midst of relationships, see people come to encounter Jesus in the midst of the very spheres of our lives, that God would actually do something that would change hearts around us. That God would open doors for the gospel. So track eight, we land really looking forward in this way participating with this God and what he's doing in this world. Um, you know, when this track was sung, what that meant for those people, the various nations that were around them, 
that they were to be kind of a first fruits of what humanity was meant to be. And let me suggest this, that we as a community, Redeemer City, we are to be kind of a, a beta version, a 1.0, okay? Not perfect. A lot of, you know, quirks, kinks to work out. This isn't the like 7.0 Windows version that was horrible anyway, right? We're talking just 1.0, you know? But that as people would look in on this imperfect community, but a community nevertheless that's clinging to the perfect human Jesus, that they would catch a glimpse of what humanity was meant to be. An invitation to participate, to come in to a community that's at work, that God is at work in to remake more and more into the image of his son. Let's pray. Father, um, you know, you, you know the, the, the challenges, the struggles um, that await us as we walk out these doors today. You know the relationships and the um, tasks that are before us this week that seem um, overwhelming. And you're, we're freshly aware of um, our need for you to be at work in the midst of our lives in our workplaces, in our families, in our city groups, in the various people you've called us to, to live and, and serve in our neighborhoods, in our apartment complexes. So God, I just pray for our community this week. Would you help us to be a people that in the small things as well as the big things, that you would give us grace that we might petition you that we understand that we're weak, but that you're able and that you're willing to step in and to help us where we find ourselves in this world. God, we thank you. You've made us in your image. And God, would you help us to work out, to live lives that are worthy, that reflect those truths. And we ask this through your son, Jesus, and for his name. Amen.